Please open your Bibles with me, the word of the Lord, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21. It is a special privilege for me to be your uh, first Sunday missions speaker. We don't normally do this, and so it is an honor for me to do so. Luke 21 and verse 1. It's a short text, but one that strikes to our hearts very quickly. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Would you pray with me? Father, we are asking that that which your son brought to the foreground as he taught his disciples in that day would, would be what your spirit does for us today. And that our hearts in whatever condition they may be, that you would open them and you would cause them more and more to be like our Savior, of whom we know that he who though rich became poverty stricken for our sakes, that we might become wealthy. Grant to us, we ask, your grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. The modern city of Luxor, Egypt, sits near the ancient capital city of Thebes. Today, this archaeological wonder is one of the most visited historical sites in the world. But the bulk of that ancient city was rediscovered by accident. There was a stone in the ground in the middle of a sandy place that seemed out of place and it was dug around a bit and it went deeper and deeper and finally it was determined that this stone was in fact a column and excavations continue and, and it was a column among many columns. And after massive archaeological excavations over many years, a whole ancient city was rediscovered with its palaces, its temples, its shops, and its homes. Well, how could an ancient city of such importance be forgotten? Well, the once ruler of Thebes had changed his royal city from that location to another location. And Thebes fell into gradual disuse and was largely abandoned. And over the course of century upon century upon century, blowing sand and neglect covered the vast bulk of the ancient city. Now, likewise, brothers and sisters, there are vital and glorious truths of the believer's gospel life that can become buried under the, the blowing sand of neglect and of the difficulties of our day-to-day -day lives. Now, our passage leads us to a stunning, great center of the Christian life that may have become buried for some of us. Here's our theme this morning. 
The heart captivated by God is also a missional heart. The heart that God, by his spirit and word, has made captive to himself is a missional heart. The heart consecrated to the majesty and the grace of God is a heart in service to the Lord. The soul gripped by the grace and glory of God must respond. Now, I want to challenge you with something. As we read this story, it's easy for you to zone out and think of this as a story in the past. And it is that. But it is the very real life story of a woman who was a widow, who was real flesh and blood, who lived in real time and space, and whom Jesus commends as a remarkable saint. Please don't forget that. This is a woman whose heart is captivated by the majesty and the faithfulness, the mercy, the goodness, and the promises of God. And therefore she cannot help but serve him. Her life and her heart is abandoned to the Father's care. And so let me ask you, is yours, is mine? Remember, though her story appears here in the New Testament, she is an Old Testament saint. She lives prior to the cross of Christ. She lives prior to his resurrection and his ascension to glory, to the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. She is at the fulcrum point of redemptive history, and she is an Old Testament saint. And that makes her story all the more remarkable because she doesn't have the majesty of the gospel before her eyes as you and I do. All the more a wonder that she is like she is. And all the more a challenge to you and to me that we are not more like her. Well, I want to take us into Luke 21 with two vital truths to which I've already alluded. First, the captured heart. And second, the captured heart is a missional heart. The heart of a believer captive to our God is a heart in sacrificial service to the Lord. First then, we turn to the story and to the vivid picture of a captive heart, a heart in devotion to the Lord. Well, what do we find? We find a widow. We're told nothing about when her spouse died, but she is a widow who has gone through grief and may still be in grief. She's a woman burdened by her relentless poverty. She's a woman who might well have been at the market buying with her meager means her last loaf or two of bread. Put yourself in her sandals. In those hours, in those moments, with two tiny copper coins worth almost nothing, what might you have been doing on that day? But where do we find her? Look again at verses 1 and 2. Jesus looked up. And saw the wealthy putting their gifts into the offering box. These were 13 trumpet-shaped uh, boxes with lids on them in the shape of a trumpet in the women's court to which all people could go and bring their offerings to the Lord. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Where do we find her? She's not in her ramshackle dwelling 
fretting over why God has not provided for her. She is not on a street corner begging for alms. No, she has gone up to the house of her heavenly father to worship with her sacrifice of praise and to give him all that she is. She's at the temple where sacrifices were raised to the Lord. Let me put it in the vernacular. She went to church on a morning when most would would have thought that would be the last place they might go. And she did not come empty-handed, for she knows the great worthiness of God. And as a believing Jewish, Jewess, she comes humbly believing that the Lord of covenant faithfulness has not forgotten her, has not abandoned her. Perhaps she rests in the promises that Isaiah made in Isaiah 54. Listen to those promises. Fear not, the prophet says, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. It's a covenantal promise in the Old Testament that really just looks like the gospel, doesn't it? And she believes this. You see, her two smallest copper coins were the the smallest denomination of Jewish coin that one could have. She was giving what amounted to one sixty-fourth of a day's wages. And that's all she had. It meant an inconsequential thing for the maintenance of the temple. But its exceeding value was in the trustful worship with which it was given. She mirrors to us what we read of the Macedonian believers later in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says of them, in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's the widow. Paul goes on, he says, they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Dear ones, I want you to see this vastly important truth. That when you read this passage, you come away thinking that she is a poor woman. But I submit to you that she's incredibly wealthy. How so? She was already a wealthy person because she was deeply enraptured by the love of her heavenly father for her. So that her sacrifice, no doubt in her own mind, was considered meager compared to his worthiness. 
she was a profoundly wealthy woman, though she had very little means. You see, she had cast her money into the temple treasury freely because she had already cast her, her life into the heart of God. That was the difference between those who are juxtaposed with her in this passage. Her heart resonates with the heart of King David who prayed this when he was preparing for his son Solomon to build the temple of God. Listen to this beautiful prayer. David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly of God's people and he said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer thus willingly? I have no doubt that even though that passage in its detail might not have resonated in her heart, its essence was there. Her life, as ours, is meant to be driven by this God-shaped, God-centered view of our world. She sees nothing unconnected to the covenant-keeping God whom she's come up to worship. Everything flows from her soul being shipwrecked on the rock of God's loving faithfulness. Now, we who are in Christ in this day know that Jesus Christ is the faithful shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, what? I shall not lack. Is this our life? That we have been captured by our Father's care, by the one who is our shepherd. Why do we hold back? from a captured heart and a captured life. May I put it to us directly? Has Christ not been enough for you? Has he not done enough for you? Are his promises to you inadequate? Has he ever once wronged or betrayed you by his word or what he has done. We hold back because we have not been more deeply captured by the infinite worth of our Savior and the magnitude of his forgiving goodness to us. But I want us to move on in our hearts and minds to the second truth flowing from our text. The captured heart is a missional heart. The soul captive to God's majesty and grace must be a life that is given over to sacrificial service. This dear woman's soul was abandoned to what the scripture says is her heavenly husband. 
She was a widow, but she had a husband. And it was her God. What God had poured into her by his covenant love and his faithfulness must pour out of her. She goes up to the house of God and pours out her sacrificial tribute. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Jesus said, truly I tell to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Not more than any of them, but more than all of them combined is what the text says. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty all that she had to live on. This woman was a believing daughter of Abraham and of Abraham's God. She came to the temple to give her soul to the Lord's worship and her meager means to his service. And notice, notice to our discomfort that Jesus is watching attentively. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows our hearts and Jesus knows our deeds and he watches attentively. He declares that her two coins are more than all of the other gifts. What's he driving at for us to see? The more well-to-do gave out of their abundance which mu with much left over. And so it's fair to say that there was little to no pain, no sacrifice, no pinch, no bite, no adjustment of a lifestyle to what they did. But the widow gave with such deep sacrifice that it's also fair to say she did not then know when she left the Temple Mount where her next meal was coming from. But she trusted her father. The well-to-do gave abundant gifts with no sacrifice of heart and life, and the widow gave little wealth but with abundant sacrifice. And she is the one commended by our Savior. The wealthy felt no need of pouring their souls out to the Lord in dependent sacrificial trust because they were comfortable. Brothers and sisters, I am far too comfortable, and I submit that most of us are. Might it be true of us that we have little need of pouring our souls out to the Lord in dependent sacrificial trust because of how comfortable we are? But the widow's heart had already been poured into the Lord's hands, and so her sacrifice flowed easily. So when the Lord looks upon your giving and mine, now let's broaden this out. This text is often viewed just in a monetary sense, our treasure. But it really needs to be viewed in the sense of the breadth of our life. All of the talents that God has given us, all of the wealth, all of the gifts, the giftings of your life, all of your time, bringing all of those things together, the Lord looks upon our giving, not so much first as to the amount that is given, but he looks at the heart motive and intent behind what is given. And he looks at the self-denial and the sacrifice in our outpourings, he looks underneath the surface of what is given to look at what is left behind. 
And why does he do this? Please don't miss this. Why does God do this? Because he looks for the image of himself in us. If we are truly being made into the image of Jesus Christ, he who was rich became poor for our sakes that we might become wealthy. The king who laid down his life for his people, then what ought to mark us is that we are a people who across the face of our life display a measure of deep sacrifice. He would see himself in us. May I put it this way? When Jesus looks at this woman and commends her, he does not commend her for who she is in herself. He commends her for who she is after his own image. That's vital. So how do you and I parse out our wealth our time, our talents, and our gifts, how easy it is for us to give them with our focus on what is held back. But our passage and the Spirit call us to a better way, to become more deeply enamored with the wonder and the glory and the goodness of our Savior. And the more we are enamored with that, the more easily what he has given will flow through us to others. From that heart of joyful trust, we lean into sacrificial giving of all of our resources rather than lean away from sacrificial giving. Let's acknowledge how hard that is because we love our comforts and we love our wants. And we love the things that we have convinced ourselves that we need. Only the Holy Spirit applying this infinite wealth of the love of God in Christ to our hearts can break us of a life lived for ourselves. And it must come from a consecrated heart that has been set apart by the Holy Spirit. When you and I are captured by our by the infinite worth and the, the magnitude of the grace of God that he has poured into our lives, it is then that our hearts, like hers, will break open and pour out. Now, I would say to you that we who are present here this morning, with the fewest of exceptions, are wealthy by the world's standards such as those in our text. And we give out of a large, abundant storehouse, and often, often we hardly feel what we give. Because there is still so much left for ourselves. And I'll be blunt with us, brothers and sisters, and this is true of me as well. If the giving of your time and your gifts and your talents and your material wealth does not change your lifestyle or constrain you in some noticeable manner, Christ is not here commending you 
as he did this dear woman. As I close this exhortation and encouragement from the Lord's word, there is something infinitely important for you to grasp, which is really the application of what we're talking about. Christ's point here is not a moral lesson that goes like this. See how devoted this woman is? Go and be more like her. That's not the lesson. I hope you see it. That she is a marvelous neon sign pointing to Christ, the true son, whose whole life, his incarnation, his sinless life, his humiliations, his death, his resurrection, his ascension on high, the whole majestic life of our Savior, that is the picture of the true Son who gave everything out of the poverty of his incarnation. He is the tribute to the Father on our behalf. We become like her, not by pursuing her, but by pursuing Christ who is in her. She has no power to help us. Her example is a wonderful one. But all she can do is point us away from herself to Jesus. That's the point. She is not saying, come be as I am. Only that if you would be as I am, be as the great God in my heart is, who consumes all things, who is to be trusted at all times, who will never fail nor ever forsake. It's not a morality tale calling us to be good boys and girls and that all that will be well. This is the call of Christ to see that only by a day-by-day walk and union with him can this be more true of us. You see, your heart and mine are still so terribly tainted by the fall and our own idolatries that we are at war in ourselves with this willingness to be so sacrificial. This is the Apostle Paul's struggle in Romans 7. Let me read just three verses of his struggle in Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law that troubles me. No that wages war against the law of my mind and makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You see, nothing less than Christ and his spirit and an inflamed heart of faith can bring us into that joyful death to ourselves. 
Only Christ abiding in us and us in him can slay the dragon that is myself and replace it with his preeminence in great things and in small things and in everything. I believe that many of us here, because of how well I know you, at some level long to be as this woman was, sacrificially generous with our whole life. What's the hurdle? We hold back our hearts out of fear. Fear that he will not provide when our sacrificial generosity empties our pantry. We fear his unfaithfulness to us. Or we have a love that is a lesser love that has become the great love of our life. But dear one, sacrifice flows from consecration. And consecration means simply that your heart has been set apart to God deeply and daily for his praise and his service. So going back to our opening illustration of blowing sand and neglect, covering something great, does there need to be some spiritual excavating at the base of your soul? Does there need to be a spiritual archaeological dig of your own heart in concert with the Spirit, in concert with the Word, where your heart is recaptured by a soul's delight in the eternal beauty and grace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to you? Will you become once again, or perhaps for some of you here this morning, for the very first time, will you ask, will you beg that this captivating God will take over again the soil of your heart and grow the richest of fruits? Will you right now, in this hour, in childlike trust, hand your soul into the merciful hands of this covenant-keeping God who made this woman like his son, Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we offer to you as our own prayer this morning a prayer first prayed almost 270 years ago by the great minister and evangelist John Wesley. Lord, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. 
I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. And now, blessed and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it through Christ our King.